You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. Welcome to the Dr. Tina Show. I'm your host, Dr. Tina Moore. I am a naturopathic and chiropractic physician, and I'm here to tell you the truth as I know it. With censorship and thought police taking over the platforms and airwaves, my goal is to bring you real talk about all things health, strength, and resiliency. Get ready to have your paradigm rocked. I don't hold back, and I tell it how I see it. This is Human Wellness 2.0 Uncensored. Today's guest is Dr. James D. Nicolantonio. He is a cardiovascular research scientist and doctor of pharmacy. He has written over 250 medical publications and is the author of four best-selling books, including his latest, The Immunity Fix and The Mineral Fix, both of which came out this past year. In this episode, we cover non-negotiables to optimize your health, the state of our food supply, issues with ultra-processed foods, harmful side effects from omega-6 seed oils, omega-3s versus omega-6, the role of magnesium and zinc in the body, strength training sauna and the magic of hormesis, and so much more. If you have any questions for the show, please email us at podcast at drtina.com. That's D-R-T-Y-N-A dot com. And if you like this show, please rate it and subscribe to it on your favorite podcast app. I'm glad you're here. Let's jump in. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. James Nicolantonio. Did I say that right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. I've been practicing. I'm so happy to finally connect with you here. I know that we've been going back and forth on social media and over the past year and a half, and it's just a real honor to have you here today. You are the best-selling author of two books that I love. I have them here, The Mineral Fix, which I think you've cranked both these out in the past year, and The Immunity Fix. You are a doctor of pharmacy and a cardiovascular research researcher. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you take it and tell the audience a bit more about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So you, I mean, you, you had a doctor of pharmacy, cardiovascular research scientist, and I've been publishing in the medical literature for uh, over a decade now. Um, I've authored over 300 academic papers, primarily on nutrition, nutrients, uh, nutraceuticals. So I'm well-versed in, um, you know, nutrition in general, but primarily I focus on preventive cardiology and how that links to each other. All right. And I think I first discovered you, you it's the salt fix, right? Is that that was one of your earlier books. I yes. think I think I caught you on Mike Mutzel's um vlog and I bought that. I love I'm a big fan of salt. I've been a fan of salt long before it was popular. I think Dr. Brownstein was who first David Brownstein introduced me to salt back gosh, I don't know, a decade ago. And so I was very intrigued and I have come to find you to be a valuable resource, an incredibly intelligent human, and you're a great communicator. So I thought today on the podcast, uh, you and I post about a lot of the same things and we sort of double down on the basics constantly. And I thought it might be fun just to hear your take on some of the non-negotiables that you have in your life and how you optimize your health, uh, if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think number one non-negotiable is getting rid of the the three basically worst things that you can have in the diet, which is the refined carbs, sugars, and seed oils. So that's definitely non-negotiable. Um, and the problem is, is a lot of these things are already hidden in the diet. So like if you're buying packaged foods, you got to look and you need to look at the ingredients and you'll see like soybean oil or um, canola oil and these and added sugars and it's hidden. So like you really have to be a savvy shopper in order to really understand like where these ingredients are hidden. That's why it's just best to just buy whole foods that don't have ingredient labels. So that's going to eliminate the junk food. I think this, the second non-negotiable is really trying to consume the healthiest foods as close to nature as possible. Essentially grass-fed, pastured, eggs, meat, things like that, if you can afford it. Um, I think that's really important. And then, of course, exercise, sunlight. Um, I do sauna a lot, too, as well. So there's a, there's a bunch of things that I, I try to integrate uh, on a day-to-day basis. And, of course, good quality salt. Yes, absolutely. And it's a job, isn't it? I mean, this is not something that just comes by passively in our modern world. I think we're, we're, so, we're swimming in toxins unavoidably. And our like you said, our food supply has been so adulterated and disguised and hacked. And you would probably know this better than I. I I really feel like in these ultra processed foods, they can get away with putting micro amounts of ingredients in there that they don't really have to list on the label if it's not a certain amount. And these 
ingredients hijack different neurotransmitter systems and they make these things highly palatable and they set off all kinds of mouth orgasms to, to hit all the receptors. It's, it's no wonder that people are addicted to this stuff. How do you approach it when you talk to somebody who maybe has no idea like even what a refined carbohydrate is? Yeah, I think the easiest thing is I just try to tell people to avoid all flour. And essentially, because how we process grains now, we don't like basically stone grind them anymore. We run them through steel roller mills. So essentially, most flours, unless it's like stone ground, is like pulverized into this highly fine powder that will cause like dramatic increases in spikes in blood glucose. So the simplest thing for people to do is to really avoid a lot of the, the white and wheat flours. I agree. I think anything that comes in a baked form, or pretty much anything in a package that's in the middle of the grocery store, I try to avoid as a general rule. Um, I have a, you know, a saying that if it has more than five ingredients and I can't pronounce any of them or one of them even, it's not going in my pie hole. Right. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the basic rule. And you're so right about these flowers. I think a common mistake I see people making is they try to go gluten-free thinking, you know, quote unquote, gluten-free thinking that's going to be helpful, which I am a gluten-free human. I, I, perf I perform much better that way, but they often will just replace the glutinous foods with a non-glutinous version, you know, like swap it out for cookies and other things that are non-gluten. But those flours are even more refined because they have to make them ultra refined so that they're fluffy and they don't taste like hockey pucks, right? So do you see that a lot? Yeah, I do. I think people are sort of, um, it tricked very easily. So they'll, instead of eating the, the gluten brownies, they go for the, you know, the non, the gluten-free brownies. But like the bigger picture is if you couldn't hunt it or pick it or pull it from the ground and get it from nature, you probably shouldn't be eating it, regardless if it's gluten-free or not. Right? Like, how about just don't eat the brownies? <laughs> That's the better answer. I agree. I know. And it's hard for people, I think, to grasp this concept because from what I've seen, a lot of grandmothers, this is from patients, this is from my mom, this is from my mother-in-law that I've seen. A lot of grandmothers love to bake. That's a big part of how they show their love, um, food, preparing foods. And I don't think they realize well, it's almost an insult when you tell them to stop doing it, right? You tell them it's harming them and why it's harming them. And they, it's almost like it's an insult to them. How do you approach that, especially on Instagram when people are like, but it's hard. What do I do? Yeah, I think, well, you can approach it and, you know, however you want. But I think the easiest way would be to try to make the healthiest version as possible. So like if you're, if you're baking brownies, do not grab the seed oils. Use extra virgin, organic extra virgin olive oil. Don't use conventional eggs use pastured eggs, um, use pastured milk instead of conventional milk. So like you can do healthier swaps to make it a little healthier so that you're not completely like turning off like your grand, the grandparents or, um, you know, even if parents like to do that because in just try not to make it like a daily thing, it should just be a treat. And your kids really should know that this isn't like super healthy. This is just on a special occasion. Yeah. It's not food. It's a treat for sure. That's just a mindset shift, I think. So let's talk about seed oils for a minute because I I know that you understand the biochemistry of them much better than I do. They are they are evil. They are one of the main reasons I don't eat out. I think that when I eat out, I, I always get a stomach ache when I eat out. And I used to think it was because I was getting inadvertently glutened. I actually think it's the seed oils, to be honest with you. What are they doing to people? How are they making them fatter and inflamed and all the bad things that we're trying to avoid? So if you so if you think about it, right, like where are these oils are actually coming from, like a cottonseed or a soybean or um, corn, you, you can't really get a ton of oil out of something like that with your hands. You have to use a ton of high heat, a lot of times a solvent like hexane. So you're using all these chemicals and high pressures and high heat just to extract the oil. So you're already getting like this rancid oxidized oil as soon as you get it out of the seed. And then they're put in like these clear plastic bottles and they just shit on, they, they sit on the store shelves for months and they oxidize further. And then when you ingest them, actually the acidity in your stomach further oxidizes those oils. And so you get like these, what are called hydroperoxides, which can then turn into aldehydes like 4-hydroxynoninol, which are extremely damaging. Like they're mutagenic. They can damage the DNA proteins. They can even create um, neurofibrillary tangles. And the problem with 
the oxidized omega-6 seed oils is if they get into the cell membrane, they can last for months. And in the adipose tissue, they can last for up to years. So whereas like with sugar, you have this quick damaging effect with the omega-6 seed oils, it's a much more prolonged damaging effect. Wow. And you see people trying to douse that fire and get their ratios right by pounding omega-3 oils in the form of supplements. But really, to put the fire out, you just have to remove the omega-6s more. I mean, that's... That, yeah, that's definitely step one. I mean, step two, for sure, we're definitely deficient in omega-3s, particularly the long-chain omega-3s, EPA and DHA. And if you can get a high-quality fish oil supplement, I do think there's a ton of benefit for that if you're not willing to eat things like wild salmon or sardines, which a lot of people aren't, um, because that increases your beta oxidation and fat burning just at baseline um, by about 20% and during exercise by about 30%. And then, you know, it also reduces heart rate, improves exercise performance, increases muscle protein synthesis. So I do think there's a ton of good benefits with long chain omega-3s. Yeah. And so, so what's up with people who love, there's, there's just this movement towards villainizing omega-3s. Every single time I make a post about fish oil, people lose their minds. And I, and I have looked into it and I've looked into what they're saying. I want to argue that there is some really crappy forms of fish oil out there. I mean, you're like basically, you know, if you're buying Costco fish oil, you're probably eating the sewer of the sea. But there's better sourced options. Can you talk a little bit about that just briefly? Sure. I think, well, first of all, yes, most people, the, the, what's coming up is the oxidation of um, omegas, right? So if omega-6 is bad because it oxidizes, well, omega-3 should be bad as well. Not necessarily. So number one, the oxidation products are completely different. The oxidation products from omega-6 are much more damaging than omega-3. Like I would say about a hundredfold. Um, number two, the body actually utilizes oxidized omega-3s as important signaling molecules. So if one of our cells is damaged, the signaling molecule to basically cause apoptosis and kill that cell before it turns into a cancerous cell is to oxidize the DHA and the cardiolipin. That signals caspase 3, signals apoptosis. If, so basically, if you don't have enough omega-3 DHA in your cell, you can't get that signaling apoptotic signal, and that can potentially you know, increase risk of things like cancer. So it's the omega-3s are very, very important signaling molecules, the oxidation of the omega-3. So I just want, so that's, that's why their oxidation products aren't as bad. Um, and they also don't form like these harmful aldehydes like linoleic acid does. And then if you're talking about quantitatively the difference, most people are consuming 20, 30, 40 grams of omega-6. You know, you're talking about one to four grams of omega-3s. So it's, it's a much smaller amount. So even if it oxidizes, the quantity is dramatically different. And then you're not cooking with omega-3s. You're not like taking your fish oil capsules and cooking with omega-3 uh, fish oil. So when you really put it in perspective, it's like, I, I think it's crazy to really demonize omega-3s based on their oxidation. I do too. People can't help it though. It, it doesn't matter what I post about it. There's always somebody fervent about it coming in to, uh, to light me up and it's, it, I, I don't engage. What I, how I try to approach it too is I try to let people know that if your cells don't have enough omega-3s, you won't be able to inhibit the enzymes that oxidize arachidonic acid to harmful metabolites, right? So like cyclooxygenase and so the cox and loxes of the world, lip oxygenases. So omega-3s have an anti-inflammatory effect in general. They downregulate um, nuclear factor kappa-beta. So even if they're forming some oxidation products, overall, they're increasing your antioxidant genes. Yeah, which is a win. Overall win. Yeah, net, net win. This episode of The Dr. Tina Show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my store. If you're like me, you're tired of taking so many pills, especially when it comes to fish oil that often needs higher dosing to impact inflammation levels, and then you have to deal with the fishy burps. Not with my omega-3 fish oil, Ultra Mega OK. Ultra Mega OK features natural, enzymatically enhanced, maximal monoglyceride fish oil that has three times greater EPA and DHA absorption rate than to an equivalent dose of ethyl ester fish oil. Studies show that the starting dose for anti-inflammatory benefits for fish oil are around 3,000 milligrams a day, which can often mean taking three to six capsules a day or more of the competitor's fish oil. 
That same benefit can be obtained with one capsule of Ultra Omega OK due to its advanced absorption technology. Some other benefits of fish oil have been shown in studies to support cardiovascular health, support healthy mental function, support healthy glucose and insulin metabolism, and more. Ultra Omega OK formulas are made using proprietary maximal compositions containing monoglyceride, FO, with no additional ingredients, carriers, or excipients. Each fish gelatin soft gel is enteric coated, which means little to no fishy burps, and every batch of fish oil ensures the world's highest standards for purity, potency, and freshness. This fish oil is non-GMO, certified sustainable from a variety of small fish in Scandinavia, and antibiotic-free. Additionally, it's eco-friendly because the greater absorption of EPA and DHA ultimately means that fewer grams of fish oil are needed to be harvested for the same benefit. While I can't make any specific health claims, tell you how to dose it, or make individual recommendations, I can tell you how these products work. As always, check with your provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners of the show can enjoy 10% off Ultra Omega OK by using the code ULTRAOMEGA10 in all capital letters over at my store. That's store.drtina.com. Again, that's store.drtina.com, D-R-T-Y-N-A. And yes, I did name it after a Soundgarden album for you diehard fans. You know who you are. I use this product every evening before bed, and it significantly improves my mood, outlook, and levels of discomfort. Again, head to store.drtina.com and use code ULTRAOMEGAOK10, all one word, for 10% off. I love it. Okay, let's talk about aldehydes really quick since you just mentioned them. Tell people what those are, because I mention those sometimes too, and people get lost in the milieu. Yeah. Um, so essentially, it's sort of hard to chemically explain what it is. Um, but when you oxidize a polyunsaturated fat, um, and the reason why they oxidize this is because they have double bonds. So you don't get this with saturated fats, which um, basically all the hydrogens are fully saturated. There's no double bonds to basically oxidize. Um, when you oxidize those molecules, they first form these things called lipid hydroperoxides, which are damaging themselves, but that can then turn into like these aldehydes, which are even more damaging. And essentially, they can not only damage the proteins, which um, hydroperoxides can, but they can damage DNA, which um, a lot of things can't. So this is where the whole cancer issue and things like that come into play because once you start damaging DNA, that's really bad. Yeah. And this is happening because we're heating these seed oils or is this just a natural part of the breakdown in the body? It happens when you isolate the omega-6, you take out the, uh, the vitamin E to prevent it from oxidizing, and then you basically expose it to air, to pressure, to the acid in your stomach. And so it's basically like you're taking away the whole food protection, like nuts and seeds encapsulate the omega-6. The omega-6 is always with vitamin E to prevent it from oxidizing. So when you just extract the oil, you lose all that natural protective sort of like benefits of the whole food. Right, right. So I'm going to jump around a little bit here because this is so fun. What are your thoughts on magnesium and all of this. Let's talk about magnesium because you have tied magnesium into a lot of things that I don't think most people consider. I kind of look at minerals, including magnesium, particularly if you're, they, they determine your shield against oxidative stress. So you can have shields up if you have good mineral status or shields will be down if you do not. So there's really interesting studies, um, particularly in animals, because you need animal studies to actually look at this where if you make them magnesium deficient, all their tissues, their heart, um, their liver are much more susceptible to oxidative stress. So someone who is magnesium sufficient is gonna have less damage to seed oils versus someone who is magnesium deficient. So it's, it, you don't typically think of minerals as antioxidants, but actually they are the first line defenses against oxidation, more so than vitamins, because they control your antioxidant enzymes because they're cofactors for those enzymes. And they also increase something called glutathione. So magnesium is important for keeping glutathione levels high. They are cofactors. That's such a huge point. And something I learned years ago in naturopathic school was the fact that they're such important and critical cofactors. And that's something that's not often discussed. You know, you think of magnesium and its direct effect on smooth muscle or, you know, the real basics, but you don't, people don't really understand its importance in so many molecular processes that, like you said, lead to that oxidative or antioxidative shield. 
Critical. What about Magstein? I love Magstein. I know that's a product that you uh, promote, and I have it in one of my products. I It's sort of my wake my brain up and go product, and I'd love to hear why it works so well. So Magstein is magnesium L3 and A. Um, it's a patented magnesium compound, and it's bound to um, threonic acid, which is just a metabolite of vitamin C. So the problem with other magnesium supplements is they can't boost brain levels of magnesium. So it's the levels of magnesium in the brain that actually are required to convert like 5-HTP to serotonin and then serotonin to melatonin. Um, So if you want to form the feel-good neurotransmitters in the brain, like serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline, and melatonin, so if you want to have a good night's sleep, you literally have to have good levels of magnesium in the brain or you cannot form melatonin and serotonin and all these other things. So you know, doctors typically just like to just throw like an antidepressant at someone, or if you can't sleep, just throw like a Ambien. But, you know, if, you're, if you don't have the basic nutrients in the brain to create these neurotransmitters, then that's, that's the key problem. And, and Magtine is the only magnesium supplement that has been shown to significantly boost not only uh, magnesium, uh, magnesium levels in the cerebral spinal fluid, but also in the actual neurons themselves. And there are clinical studies with this product that have shown improvements in cognition, um, executive functioning in people with mild cognitive impairment. And of course we can't make disease claims, but there are also studies looking at um, Alzheimer's and ADHD patients as well showing benefits. So um, can't definitively say right on disease states, but it's just interesting that that particular supplement um, can boost brain levels of magnesium. Yeah, it's, it's such a great product. And I think it has such a variety of uses. I think of it for young people who are having a hard time concentrating, like you said, just sort of that um, attention deficit situation, whatever you want to call it. I hate putting labels on people, to be honest, but I feel like sometimes brains are overactive, sometimes they're underactive, sometimes they're aging, sometimes they're just oxidatively stressed. And when you get a product like that, that crosses that blood brain barrier in there, it's a game changer. I've been taking versions of this type of magnesium for years, and it's been a huge improver of my mood, of, like you said, cognitive function, the ability to create and uh, make content. I mean, it's like, it's that's why it's my get up and go brain sparker, if you will. Do you ever find that people can get a little bit stimulated on it to the point where it might impact sleep? There's two different, what I've noticed, two different people that are resp- responses from the product. Um, and typically it depends on your baseline magnesium status. So for myself, because I have a very high magnesium status, I feel very relaxed and it chills me out. Whereas like my wife, for example, it completely activates her. She like can't turn her brain off and she's so productive throughout the day. So like for me, it's like I'm taking this more at night or to relax. And for her, it's like in the morning with coffee so she can just like go all day. So it really just depends on the person. Ah, okay. That's great. That's a really good way to put it. Do you find that people who are chronically magnesium depleted have a hard time holding on to it and that, that it's something that supplementation over time will help build up stores or that it's just they're just built that way and they're going to need to take high doses forever? Yeah, I think so. There's, I mean, there's probably a huge gamut of like what's going on here because a lot of people are insulin resistant and you need insulin sensitivity to drive magnesium into the cell to work. And a lot of people have high levels of insulin that kicks magnesium out in the urine. So supplementing, of course, is going to help. But getting also at the root cause and fixing insulin resistance and high insulin levels is also going to make the supplement work better, if that makes sense. Of course. Yes, that's what I was getting at. (laughs) And they will their insulin resistance will improve as their magnesium status improves, right? There's definitely tons of studies showing that magnesium supplementation improves insulin sensitivity, glucose levels, A1C, blood lipids, triglycerides, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So we can supplement our way to feeling good, which is great. I mean, it's a nice tool, but ultimately what you're saying is get to the root cause so that we don't have to keep taking massive quantities of things to get there. How does zinc play into this just real quick? I know that taking zinc and magnesium at the same time has been discouraged. Potentially there's receptor interaction. I want to hear what you have to say about it. It's possible that um, there's some competitive absorption uh, with magnesium and zinc. So if you are worried about that, you can just space them out by like three, four hours, and then you're, there, there's not going to be any issue. I mean, there's certainly an inhibit, inhibitory 
effect of zinc on copper. Mm-hmm. But when it's coming from real foods, there doesn't seem to be a huge inhibition as long as the copper intake is at least one milligram per day, which a lot of people in the Western world are teetering on even being able to get that much. Yeah. People are not eating real food, which goes back to the first part of our conversation. You know, they're eating highly palatable processed foods that come in packages. What do you think about zinc as a another mineral that I find often deficient in people? I, I found that to be, it's almost my go-to. Magnesium and zinc are literally my go-to for everybody. I And vitamin D, which I want to talk about magnesium and vitamin D absorption. I find that especially at my, my kind of classic uh, zinc deficient person would be somebody who's anxious, low appetite, um, craving junk food or carbohydrates, not sleeping well. Let's talk about zinc a little bit. I think if you're not eating good amount of animal foods, you're highly likely to be deficient in zinc because plant foods are just so low, not only in zinc, but the bioavailability of zinc too. And they, they're high in the you know, inhibitors, the antagonists mm-hmm. of zinc. So if, if you're not eating at least 12 ounces of red meat per day, you know, good luck hitting it, the RDA for zinc. If not, there's the optimal intake is probably double the RDA, to be honest, if not more, if, especially if you lift weights. 12 ounces of red meat. That's, that's a sizable portion for somebody like me. And I don't think that people understand just what you said. The Absorb the absorbability of the forms that come from animal protein are just so superior to those that are coming out of plant life. And like also, like you said, those anti-nutrients that exist in plants. Plants were, I think it was Dave Asprey who said plants want to kill you. You know, they're they're just I was ripping some arugula out of the garden the other day and my hands were burning. I mean, just burning from the molecules that they were secreting as I was murdering them, right? And I thought, you know. The next place for this would be my gut. And that seems a really bad thing to be putting in my gut right now. (laughs) So with that said, a lot of people, especially in my profession, will say, well, you need massive amounts of vegetables to absorb your new or to get your minerals. Um, I would like to hear what you have to say about that because massive amounts of vegetables really mess up my gut. Right. Um, So I guess it depends on how diverse your animal foods are uh, because... You know, if you're just selecting, let's say, the muscle meat itself and eggs, um, then you're going to need diff- other sources to get other nutrients, um, like li- like liver. You would need liver for the copper because your muscle meat and eggs basically have virtually no copper in them. So I think just adding a little, like a half an ounce of liver to people's diets on a daily basis is going to give them the folate, the vitamin A, and the copper that a lot of people are lacking when they're just typically just picking your typical um, animal foods being muscle meat and eggs. I don't think you have to eat any plant foods per se because the the main argument that, that I think has some, uh, let's say, weight to it is actually to balance out the acid load from animal foods. Now, the, the reason for this being is, is, yes, you can breathe out acid, but in order to do that, you have to deplete your bicarbonate levels. And the kidneys only have a set capacity to actually excrete acid before you start retaining it. So there's, there's an argument there that you, you should consume fruits and vegetables to balance out acid, but you don't have to. You can simply consume bicarbonate mineral waters or like supplements like either sodium bicarbonate or sodium citrate in order to do that. So, but most people don't know about that. So like a lot of people are consuming fruits and vegetables to balance out the acid from animal foods. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's super interesting and, and a really nice way to put it. And it's just basic, you know, it's just basic sciences there that that does help. Do you, can I just jump back real quick? If you're lifting weights, because we're going to talk about strength training here in a second. If you're lifting weights, why do you need more zinc? Oh, that's good. So as you build muscle, uh, muscle is one of the largest storage tanks and needs for zinc. So as you increase um, bone mass, as you increase skeletal muscle mass, your need for zinc dramatically increases. Mm. Interesting. How about, does it same go for magnesium? Yep. Same goes for magnesium. Um, actually, and with that, you are also consuming more thing, more protein um, as well. And protein taxes magnesium status, just like any uh, macro source taxes magnesium status. So the more protein you start consuming too, you need more magnesium as well. Ah, yes. This is all coming together. I love it. 
What do you, uh, let's talk about strength training just because, oh, wait, let's back up before we jump off. Magnesium and vitamin D. Why do you need magnesium to absorb your vitamin D? Yeah, so, uh, well, there, there's this transporter that um, carries vitamin D around and that transporter needs uh, magnesium to work. And also in order to activate vitamin D to the active hormone, which is what absorbs calcium and activates all the genes, um, there's an enzymatic step. So the kidneys, the liver, they have these enzymes, these hydroxylases essentially that convert vitamin D to the active hormone calcitriol. And those enzymes require magnesium to work. So if you want to produce the active form of vitamin D, you have to have a good magnesium status to do that. Yes. What are your thoughts on people who say, I can't get my vitamin D up? I go out in the sun, I take a supplement, my D won't elevate. What, what are some of the common reasons you see for that happening? It's possible that, you, that your active D is actually great um, and because they don't measure calcitriol typically. They're, they're measuring in, in active form. So that's one potential. You could be a really good converter. And so the active hormone is great, but your, your vitamin D levels are like low or not too great. Or it simply could be um, that you're not getting enough D because, you know, sunlight and skin exposure, it's, you know, not a guarantee that you're going to hit good vitamin D levels, especially if you're not consuming good um food sources of vitamin D. So you can't just rely on sunlight for vitamin D per se. Yeah. And inflammation and obesity can also keep those levels low, right? That's very true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons for pe people ask me that often because I'm a big proponent of going out in the sun and I tell my followers to do the same and then they'll say, you know, I just can't get it up. And I'm like, yeah, there's lots of reasons for that. So it's not, a, it's not always, and it might be magnesium deficiency. It might be a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about strength training because that's my favorite thing. And I love, love, well, let's put it this way. I don't know a successful entrepreneur who doesn't strength train. I don't know a successful, smart, healthy, fit scientist or doctor who doesn't strength train. Like it, to me, it's the absolute non-negotiable. There's I mean, I, of course, prioritize sleep. And obviously, we've just had a long discussion about what you put in your mouth and, how, you know, the foods that you eat and absorption of those foods is obviously critical too. But building muscle is paramount if you want to survive the zombie apocalypse. And I think that you really double down on this a lot in your posts. Why is it so critical to you? It's sort of like if you don't do anything, you your muscle goes like this, right? Like you you become sarcopenic essentially, where like your skeletal muscle by the age 30 you start dramatically losing how much muscle you and bone that you have. So if you don't start doing things like strength training to combat that decline, you're going to be in serious trouble in your 70s and 80s. Yes. And frailty number 1 and number 2 and correct me if I'm wrong, just from the studies I've seen come out this year, you know, you and I were trying to talk about this at the very beginning. So was Mike Mutzel. A lot of us were getting a lot of grief for it. Stark, I'm sorry, frailty and lack of exercise are some of the biggest risk factors for poor outcomes with this virus, period. Above advanced age, above even organ um, transplant recipients, you know, I mean, just not having, going into anything, any infectious disease process or cancer or any trauma to the body, you know, burns, you name it, whatever, falls. If you don't have good muscle mass on your body, I mean, you're just, you're walking in without armor. Right. And I mean, from, I mean, from a vanity perspective, it's the best way to lose fat because it dramatically increases your basal metabolic rate. And it's not like, hours of running where you're ravenously hungry afterwards and you typically over consume, you consume more typically calories than what you've burned on like an aerobic type of exercise. Whereas if you, if you build muscle on yourself, you're, you're burning more calories at baseline just because you have so much more muscle and it doesn't seem to activate as much hunger as like aerobic exercise would. Agreed. Agreed. And that elevation of the basal metabolic rate, that's why I tell people that muscle eats fat. You know, I say that in a, in a, you know, in a fun way, and people want this like exact molecular breakdown. But bottom line is that basal metabolic rate being higher at all times, it, and it really allows you for, to enjoy life more. I mean, I can eat carbohydrates now. You know, it's not something that I was doing before. I see so many people go into either ketosis or low carb, and they don't add the strength training component. And I think it's just shooting yourself in the foot, right? They're so worried about their electrolytes. They're so worried about this and that and doing it right and jumping on the bandwagon, but they're not strength training. And, or they're 
especially in my profession, to be honest with you, that I would go to school with, like the bulk of the people I went to school with were so militant about the foods they chose to put in their mouth, but they wouldn't pick up a weight if it hit them in the face, you know? And it's just like, guys, you're missing, like, this is the fountain of youth. (laughs) This is literally the key to a healthy, happy immune system and the fountain of youth for lots of reasons. But I would love to hear more if you want to extrapolate on that. Yeah, just, I mean, just from a a mineral perspective too, it helps keep your, your muscles more insulin sensitive so they can utilize the minerals better. They prevent um, having too large of spikes in minerals um, when you take them, which, so if you don't move a lot, uh, like you're very sedentary and you start taking supplements, that can actually lead to further deficiency because it'll spike the blood level so high and trick the body that you're overloaded. It'll downregulate absorption and increase the kick out in the urine. So just moving more is going to help soak up those minerals better and allow your body to use them more. Yes, I love that. I had never thought of that that way, but that's that's brilliant. What are your thoughts on myokines secreted by muscles and their impact on the the anti-inflammatory benefit that they bring us? Yeah, I think so lifting weights is like another one of your hormetic stressors, right? Like the the little bit of stress that you give yourself every day and that in the oxidation that occurs from that. Uh, you end up becoming more resilient to other types of oxidative stress in the future. And myokines play a role in that. And um, the hormetic response plays a role in that. So anything like sauna, cold therapy, um, I don't know what else, plants even in some cases, right? Like work through a hormetic effect, not necessarily like an antioxidant effect. Yeah. Tell the audience what hormesis is for those who don't know. It's basically like, you know, you damage yourself a little bit so that after the repair, you're more resilient to the stresses that come your way in the future. Yeah, that's really, that's a nice way to put it. I love the whole idea of hormesis. It's just these small modulated doses of stress on the organism, and then you rest and refeed the organism, and then they bloom. You know, it's it's like how you literally force plants to bloom, or how you, um, like you said, make yourself generally more resilient. And the nice thing about strength training is you can control that dose, right? You can control it through your sets or your reps or the amount of weight. And that's something that the individual can choose at the moment. If I'm taxed out, if my central nervous system, CNS is not happy that day because of the strat, I just got off a plane or whatever, my circadian rhythm screwed up, I didn't eat well the day before, whatever, I can choose to dial up or down that hormetic stress, but I still make sure I get it because I feel amazing afterwards. And the key though, for everyone listening is you have to rest and refeed, right? And for all the reasons you just brought up, it's like we have to absorb those minerals and get those nutrients in and and let the body sleep and, and recover. But that's where the magic happens. I think a lot of people think the magic happens with the actual act of strength training and ripping their muscles apart, but it's the next day, right? <laughs> Hundred percent, and that's where things like post-exercise sauna come in. Um, that's where you know there are some types of protocols where if you have to do training, like like in your, let's say you're in a competitive camp where um, you know cold water immersion and things like that helped with recovery. So yeah, it's I mean any athlete knows that recovery is the most important thing um, above all else. Yes. I did not understand that when I first started strength training and I went into it. I was about 40. Uh, I personally had been underweight, purposely underweight my whole life. Like I had always been with that skinny little anorexic girl. And somewhere in my thirties, my later thirties, I was so thin. I was, I was probably thinner than I was in high school and I was really thin in high school. And I realized if I fell, I felt like I was going to shatter. Like I literally thought I was just going to splinter into a million pieces. I could feel it. I felt like a dried out overcooked chicken breast that had been left on the counter for three days. You know, like nothing about me felt juicy and pliable. (laughs) So I started strength training with the only intention was to have good form and to grow some muscle mass. And my coach was like, well, you know, let's do body composition, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't want to lose a pound, dude. I'm trying to put on weight, you know? So I have successfully put on about 10 to 15 pounds since then. It's taken years. I wonder though, going back to a lot of what we just talked about and what you brought up with the mineral status and with the nutrient status, if I couldn't have gotten there a lot faster, if I had just doubled down on getting adequate nutrition in my body versus continuing to, I did the under eat, over lift, 
not recover thing for a few years and my joints paid the price. So I am now in the, I'm in my late forties phase. I would like to keep strength training into my eighties and nineties. I better do this intelligently. (laughs) I'm not chasing numbers on the bar anymore. I'm just trying to maintain good body composition and get through the zombie apocalypse. So. Yep. No, totally. I mean, I, I injured myself when I was 26 bench pressing. I tore my uh, left pectoralis tendon, never got it fixed. And there, there goes to show you college and health, right? Like tendon just tore. So, um, that helped get, get collagen on my radar, um, and on its importance. And, and of course, minerals and vitamins are needed to stimulate the production of collagen and strengthen collagen to cross link type one collagen. You need something called lysyl oxidase, which requires copper, um, to stimulate the production of collagen. You need vitamin C. So nutrients run the show. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll put, well, I, specialized for over a decade in regenerative injection therapy. So if you need your pec fixed, just come to Portland. <laughs> I'll, I'll hook Sounds you up. Good. Yeah. Like really, I, nine times out of 10, I oh my dog sneezing. Nine times out of 10, I can bring people back to um, more function, much less pain pretty easily. Okay. So I'm not in practice though, for those listening, I'm just offering it to Dr. James. This episode of the Dr. Tina show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my online store. A daily necessity for anyone who wants optimal brain performance to enjoy improved executive function, clarity, and concentration, my vital brain with magtine is the obvious choice. Magtine is a patented form of magnesium 3 and 8, the only form of magnesium proven in animal studies to cross the blood-brain barrier. Boosting the brain's magnesium levels is vital to healthy cognition, which includes long and short-term memory, learning, stress management, and even sleep. Vital Brain comes in a delicious lemon-lime flavor that easily mixes into water or your morning smoothie, and it does not impact your bowels like other forms of magnesium can. It gets into your brain where it's needed. Less pills, improved absorption. Magtine has been shown in studies to raise brain levels of magnesium, which impacts brain synapses directly. Unlike other brain products on the market that work via brain stimulation, often overstimulation, magtine works via a completely different mechanism. When brain magnesium levels are not optimal, synapse function deteriorates. By delivering magnesium into the synapses, vital brain helps brain cells stay healthy without being overactivated. Consequently, brain cells respond to signals with clarity and robustness. While I can't make specific health claims, tell you how to dose, or make individual health recommendations, I can tell you how these supplements work. As always, check with your health provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners of The Dr. Tina Show can enjoy 10% off Vital Brain by using the code VITALBRAIN10 in all capital letters over inside my store at store.drtina.com. I use this product every morning, and it significantly improves my productivity throughout the day. Again, head to store.drtina.com and use code VITALBRAIN10, all capital letters, for 10% off. Let's talk quickly before we have to finish up here about um, sauna, because I know you're a big fan. I just finally got my sauna put together. I've been using a little pop-up far infrared unit, but I finally just got my big cedar, beautiful sunlight and sauna, and I... I don't want to get out of it. Like, I feel so good when I go in there. What's happening? Why am I so excited about it? Well, I think initially just there's there's the relaxing component of the warmth. Um, and there's a lot happening with sauna. So if you heat shock animals before you give them a lethal virus, they're much more likely to live. They have less lung pathology. They have less da- uh, damage. Um, they clear, clear viruses quicker um, because the heat shock protein releases. Um, Basically, it's been shown that the release of heat shock protein 70 um, can prevent uh, basically a docking of a certain protein, which is needed for viral export and replication. So these heat shock proteins like block uh, essentially viral uh, nucleocapsid export um, or reduce it uh, pretty dramatically. Um, And that's been shown in influenza and rhinovirus. So, um, you know. Heat shot proteins for the win. They are, they are, they're my jam. They're like crack. <laughs> they're basically an indication that hormesis is going on because they're there to repair the damaged, denatured proteins that basically, again, it's this hormetic response. You're, you're breaking down protein and heat, and then your body has to come and release these heat shock proteins to repair. So, um, and then heat acclimation is, is really great for athletic performance because after you go into the sauna, let's say every single day for two weeks, 
your body adapts. So your baseline core body temperature is actually a lot cooler, which gives you a lot more time to exercise before you actually hit a critical core body temperature. So actually one of the best ways to pre-cool the body is to become heat acclimated in a sauna, which will dramatically improve performance um, because the increase in core body temperature for a lot of athletes, at least performing vigorous exercise, inhibits key enzymes and inhibits performance dramatically. So if you can start at a lower baseline temperature, you have a lot more longer that you can do whatever sprint or fight or whatever before you hit that critical core body temperature. And then what's really cool about heat acclimation too is your body adapts and stops spilling so many minerals and salt through sweat. Your sweat becomes much more dilute and a more dilute sweat allows you to actually cool off faster. So you are a better cooling machine when you are heat acclimated, which is kind of interesting. And then also through heat acclimation, you actually sweat faster, again, cooling you off quicker and your threshold for sweating is reduced. So you start sweating a lot faster when you are heat acclimated. So you're like this better like AC unit when you're heat acclimated after going into the sauna for one to two weeks. Yes, it's it's great. And then I feel like a million bucks the whole rest of the day. I mean, it's just, it's such a quick 10 minutes in there, just which I, obviously more is better, but even 10 minutes in there quickly during my morning time can be, I mean, it's a game changer for my productivity throughout the day and my mood. It's like a modern day time machine. You come out of there and you're like, you feel younger. I mean, it does actually like stimulate collagen health too, right? Cause you're breaking down the skin and then you, you like people have told me like, since I've started going in the sauna, like my skin glows a lot more, or, like I look even younger. So from a vanity perspective, I'll take it. It's amazing. When I am regular about it, my skin literally tightens up. It's crazy. I mean, I look like I had a facelift and I am at that age where obviously middle age is happening and my whole familial family line gets these big jowls. And if I don't get in the sauna, the, they start coming on. My whole face just starts sagging and it's amazing. It's almost like I had a procedure done when I sauna regularly. Can, right. can we talk just quickly about why some people don't sweat readily and what that actually means about their overall vitality? It takes a little bit for people to actually, um, certain people to sweat. I think it's a lot to do with genetics and people who actually traditionally lived in a colder environment. They just didn't have to sweat as much. Um, so genetics definitely play a role. So if you, and then what I have found, if pe people where their family ancestry is more closer to the equator, they sweat very well. Whereas people who have, um, you know, family ancestry in Northern latitudes don't seem to sweat as much, but, um, if you slowly go into the sauna, you will produce sweat uh, production or you will increase that to some extent. But you do have to be careful for people who, do, who don't sweat. And this brings me to the one negative of sauna, which is the loss in salt and iodine and selenium and chromium and copper. Those are like the five main minerals that are lost through sweat. And I cover how much is lost per hour in the mineral fix, but it's pretty significant, especially for things like salt and chromium and copper. Yeah, and we need that selenium to combat the Rona. So, uh, all right, this is so good. I could talk to you for hours. I wish you had taught all of my biochemistry courses. <laughs> it's cool. You guys, his books are so great. They are so well-referenced as well. And I think that a lot of the questions that people ask me online, I just refer them back to the immune fix often because it's like, hey, go dig in there. A lot of people don't seem to want to read. I don't understand why. Because I, But the, the other reason I'm going to just give you a shout out here, you're going to laugh at me. The font in this book is big. And I appreciate that so much because I am in my late 40s and my eyesight is crap. And I can't tell you how many books that I've read in my past that I go to pick up and look at again now. And I'm like, I can't read the damn thing. So for everyone listening, pick up the mineral fix and the immunity fix because we've got nice big font. It's laid out and really, you've got like everything bulleted really nicely. It goes, it ties in nicely to your Instagram account, your social media, because it all ties together. And then there's like literally half the book is references. So my big jam is empowering people to make good decisions and then hopefully help educate their family and friends as well, you know, with further empowerment. So your books are an invaluable resource in that. Is there anything that you would love, any big tip that you have that you'd love to leave the audience with? Because I feel like you are such a, a wealth of information. What's your one big take home for the audience? 
I would say, well, I would say two, I would get two take homes. One, try to get morning sunlight and try to turn off all the lights at night because that messes up sleep and your circadian rhythm. And it's something quick and easy that anyone can do. Yeah, that's huge. I agree. I think, I don't, I'm not sure if it was you or if it was um, Huberman Labs. He mentioned that you can download an app on your phone that measures lux. And if you look out the window and you use that meter, it's much lower than if you literally step outside. It's a whole game changer. So if you live, like I live in Oregon, right? I cannot get sunlight for many months out of the year, but even going outside in the rain has an impact that's beneficial. So yeah, we got to do what we can do. Well, where can people find you? Uh, Where would you like to send them to? So my website is drjamesdinick.com. That's D-I-N-I-C. And then Instagram, Twitter, at Dr. James Dinick. Love it. And make sure you guys grab these books. Are they available on Amazon or is there a preferred place? Yep. Uh, Amazon is where those two books are. Awesome. Well, Dr. James, D, I'm going to try it again, D. Nicolantonio. <laughs> I'm going to keep practice. It's going to roll off my tongue when I finally meet you in person. Thank you so much for being here. It's been such an honor to finally get to sit down with you. I hope you will consider coming back and letting me pick your brain some more because it is a good one. And you're a good person. Thanks for the work you're doing out in the world. Thanks, Tina. I appreciate it. You know, happy to come back. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A, and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.